Can you flee God's presence? That's a provoking question, isn't it? It's one that comes up time and again in Jonah. Can you flee God's presence? In 1994, the world was introduced to a character on the big screen known as Forrest Gump. Forrest was not very intelligent, man, by his own words. Or he would have said, I'm not a very smart man, but I know love. Though he's not very intelligent, Gump seems to always stumble into success at every turn. And there's many memorable scenes from this movie. But the one that stands out in my mind is Lieutenant Dan's challenge to God. If you remember the story, Lieutenant Dan was the commanding officer of Gump's troop, of his troop. And when they were on the field in Vietnam, there was an explosion. Dan goes down and Gump rescues him. And you remember, Dan had this fixation with dying on the battlefield. You know, it did this great scene where his great, great, great grandfather died in the Revolutionary War. And then there was another of his kinfolk that died in every successive war, leading their men on the battlefield. And he had this grand thought, I'm going to die like my forefathers. And then little old Forrest Gump has to be a hero at his expense. Grabs him, runs him out, and they're both injured, right? They're in the hospital, and Dan loses both of his legs. And he's a bitter man. He hates the fact that he was saved. He's miserable. He felt like he had a calling in life to die on a battlefield, and now it had been robbed from him. His purpose had been taken from him. So he kind of moves off the scene, and Gump goes through all these other things. But one thing that Gump remembered was that he had made a promise to his friend Bubba. Remember? The shrimper from Bile Battery. You remember? And, and so, well, the promise was is if we get home, we're going to shrimp together. We're going to start a shrimping company. And so he kept his promise, right? He starts his shrimping company. He said, but Bubba forgot to tell me how hard it was to catch them shrimp, you know. Because every time he draws his net up, all he catches is old metal helmets and trash and tires and maybe one shrimp. He comes in with five. He came in one day, I remember, on the dock with five shrimp. And the guy that was counting the shrimp as they came in said, laughed and said, if you'd have caught one more, you could have cocktail. You know, it was this big joke about how unsuccessful he is at shrimping. And so... Gump is sailing his ship, you know, the proud sailor going down the channel, and he looks over on the dock one day, and there's Lieutenant Dan. You know, and in this exuberant attitude, he jumps off the ship. The ship keep, the boat keeps going, runs through the dock. And he looks at Lieutenant Dan and says, that's my boat, you know. <laughs> it's a great scene. You know, they, they shrimp together. They're never catching any shrimp. And then one day they draw up a metal helmet, army helmet, and all this trash. And Dan says to Gump, to Forrest, where is your God now? A challenge to God. Where is your God at now? And that night, and, and, and Forrest is you know, narrating it because he's talking to this nurse on the park bench. And he's, he says, and you know a funny thing happened that night. God, what? Showed up. 
<laughs> and a storm, this great storm's raging. It was a hurricane, actually. And, uh, and so <laughs> all, I think I, all of the shipping boats are destroyed. And, but you remember Dan in the, in the storm scene? Forrest is scared he's going to die. You know, he's hanging on for dear life. Dan's at the top of the crow's nest, shaking his fist at God. Give me another one. You can't knock Dan off. You know, challenging God. He had asked for the presence of God. He got the presence of God, and yet he rebelled against the presence of God when God showed up. Now, we're going to talk about this little Hebrew prophet who knew about the presence of God, ran from the presence of God, rebelled against the presence of God all of his career. Even in the end, I mean, we're left with this thought about Jonah that even though God used him, it was unwillingly. He didn't want to be used for this great purpose. And so shaking his fist at God is a very common thing for Jonah. Angry that God would use him for this purpose that he didn't want to be used for. This brazen attitude is not so easily recognized in real life, is it? Not many of us get on the crow's nest and during the storm on the ship and shake our hand at God and say, give me another. You know, we don't do that very often. Most people have a healthy respect and sometimes even a fear of God. Even lost people, you know? You know, I've, I've been around lost people. I know you have where they'll slip and say the Lord's name in vain. They'll automatically start apologizing. You know, sometimes it's because they know I'm a preacher, but they do it to everybody. You know, they'll slip and say, and it's like, oh, God's going to curse me. I better not say that. They're not even saved. But yet they had this healthy, this somewhat healthy fear of the holiness of God and the fact that He's, he's God and we're not. But even though they fear Him, even though we fear Him, our lives don't always reflect that fear. Sin is a result of not fearing God. Not honoring God. That's really what sin is. Not believing God. Sin is a rebellious attitude towards God. We wouldn't rebel against the President of the United States, would we? Not in person. Oh, we might do it behind. You know, it's funny. Even all his opponents hate President Bush to his back. When he shows up, what do they all do? They won't shake his hand. They ain't going to show him proper respect. They want to get on his good side. They want to... You know, and that's in in that kind of how we do God. When we're away from God's presence, we think in our normal lives, we disrespect God, we don't fear God, we sin. Then when we come to a place like this. All of a sudden, we you know put on our P's and Q's. We mind ourselves well. We say the right things, pray the right things. We try to placate God and get His favor for ourselves. Today we want to ponder the question, can you ever flee the presence of God? I know that some of us in this service have felt that, have asked that question. Can I flee God's presence? If I could, I would. Some have even tried to flee from God. Others of you are running from Him today. You're running from Him today. Let's look at Jonah's life. Let's seek an answer from God about 
this question. Can we flee God's presence? Look there in the first verse. There's a commission of the Lord on our life, and it is clear. It's the first thing we see from Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's clear. He has a call on his life. There's no question about it. This phrase is used a hundred times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to this person. The word of the Lord came to that person. Now, we saw one this morning. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your people and from your country. That, this phrase is common prophetic introduction. This is the way prophets' speeches are introduced. The word of the Lord came. 1 Kings 17.2 And the word of the Lord came to him. Talking about Elijah. 1 Kings 17.8 Then the word of the Lord came to him. You see, it's over and over in the Old Testament. Jonah received a basic prophetic word from God. A direct command. And so, we might say, how could he disobey a direct command from God? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And we think, what a dum-dum. What was he thinking? God told him to do something. Why didn't he just do it? Has God ever commanded us and we didn't obey? He's commanded us directly, hasn't he? His word is filled with commands. It's filled with do, repent and believe. The, Old, the New Testament. First command I want to speak to anybody in the room who hasn't obeyed this one. Obey this one. It's a command. Repent and believe. And many don't obey that command. And yet they would say, Jonah, man, if I had Jonah's word, if, I, if God ever told me something directly, I'd do it. I know I would. But we don't, do we? I don't. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Yet I try to excuse myself from that all the time, don't you? I mean, I'm just being real with you. It's easy to beat up on Jonah. He's an old dead guy. Real old. I mean, from the Old Testament, 730 something BC. I mean, it's easy to take pot shots at him, but I mean, the reality is, me and you are like him, aren't we? We really are. God said, do these things, don't do these things, repent and believe, and yet we stiff neck. Rebel against Him. Direct commands from God. Jonah is clearly identified in the Scripture. We see that, that he is the son of Amittai. And I mentioned last week that, that, that same, this same prophet is spoken of in 2 Kings 14.25 when it says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo, Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabia or Araba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which He spoke by His servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hephar. Now, Gath-Hephar is in the region of Galilee, just north of Nazareth. Remember last week I said, didn't the Pharisees really mess up? They said, no prophet has ever come from Galilee. Yeah, yeah, they did. (laughs) 
Jonah was the only one, but he did come from Galilee. He did come just from north, right around Nazareth, same place Jesus came from. And you know, he's the only Old Testament prophet to come from Galilee. He's the only prophet Jesus directly ties himself to. Almost in direct rebuttal of the Pharisees. You want to forget Jonah? I'll help you remember who he is. His sign is my sign. He was just as he was three days in the belly of the fish, so I'll be three nights and three days in the grave. He, the, that's the only prophet. Not Moses, not Jeremiah, not Isaiah. He never ties himself to any other prophet. Only this one, Jonah, directly. And so Jonah is a very honored prophet in the Old Testament. Yeah, he's a minor prophet, and he did speak to Jeroboam II, the king of the northern kingdom, not to Judah. So it'd be easy to overlook him. His, his nation was filled with sin. Yeah, they were the people of God, but they had been worshiping Baal for some time. We see that in Elijah and Elisha's ministry, right? That they were almost totally given to Baal worship. Matter of fact, it was so bad that Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one left that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And of course, God told him, that's not true. I've got others I've spared from doing that same thing. So don't exalt yourself, Elijah. But it was so widespread in, in Elijah's day, this worship of idols, and especially Baal, that Elijah felt all alone. And Jonah is in his, he comes almost immediately after Elisha. Almost immediately after Elisha, Jonah rises. He goes into the court of the northern tribes there before Jeroboam the second. And he, I mean, he gets the fun thing first, right? He gets to tell them God's going to bless us. He's going to expand us. Even though we're sinful, He's going to expand us. It's just a picture of God's grace. They didn't deserve God's blessing. God gave it anyway. They deserved to be crushed. Yet God gave them a blessing. He expanded their borders farther than they had ever been to the north. And so He got the good message first. But Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament that not only speaks against a foreign nation, Jeremiah did that, Isaiah did that, many of the prophets did that, but they usually spoke the message in their home country. You know? They spoke directly to God's people about others around them. God is going to... And it was, in a sense, God was lifting up His people. He was saying, I know it looks bad, I know they're pummeling you and taking you off into captivity, but I'm going to punish them. That's not Jonah's message. The word of the Lord, look at it, came to Jonah, verse 2, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. Jonah's the prophet who was told to go to the lost world and preach the message. Don't preach it to God's people. Preach it to them. This is a very peculiar prophet. He's set apart from all other prophets. Very different. His life is a picture of God's grace and mercy on the whole world. If we didn't have His life in this story, we might be able to excuse the Pharisees for their belief. 
that they weren't to speak to the Gentiles about the gospel, that they weren't to go to the Samaritans. But we have Jonah. And God sent him to spend his career there in Nineveh preaching. Jonah received clear instructions, as I said before, from the Lord in verse 2. The phrase that's translated for us, arise, go to Nineveh, the NIV leaves arise out. That's a great error because that word arise in the Hebrew is a speak to, to speak urgency on a matter. Not get up when you want to, not get up when it's convenient to you and go to Nineveh. No, go now to Nineveh. Right now. Get up. Immediately go. That's what it's saying. Immediately go. The message, Jonah, is urgent. Nineveh is a city that the Hebrews hated. They hated Nineveh. You know, Nineveh is mentioned in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12, the first time. Cush fathered Nimrod, which means mighty hunter. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From, the land, from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kalah, and Razan, between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Nineveh was a great city even in Genesis. It was a great city. And so it's grown in its wealth. The Assyrians are the most powerful people in all of Mesopotamia. They're the wealthiest. They built the biggest cities because they're of the evil Cushite or Hamite people. What do we know about them? They exalted themselves above God. They did it in Genesis 11. And God scattered them on the face of the earth. The Ninevites and the city of Nineveh specifically. You might could say all of Assyria, but specifically Nineveh. To the Hebrew name and to the Hebrew people represented self-exaltation. Humanism. The belief that there is no God in heaven. We are God. Outright, utter disrespect to Yahweh. From its inception, the city was a great city. And it had always been rebellious against God. And so Jonah seems to be in the same mode of warning that the angel that went, the messenger that went to Sodom in Genesis 18, right? Go and tell them destruction is at hand. That's what Jonah was to say. Go and tell them I'm going to destroy them because their sin has come up before me. That's the same thing he said about Sodom. Their sin has risen up before me. And what was their sin? Well, I would say Nineveh's sin and Sodom's sin is the same sin because it came up before God. And it provoked his wrath against them directly. And what was their sin? Pride. Self-exaltation was their sin. Not homosexuality. Not sexual perversion. Not just idolatry. No, their sin was to say, 
to thumb their nose at God, to say, we don't need Him. We are a great people. We don't need a God. We are God. That's the attitude of the Ninevites. That's the attitude of Sodom. Be honest. See attitude some of you have, isn't it? Oh no, you haven't built a great city. Maybe you're not wealthy. But in your heart of hearts, there's no fear of God. There's no fear of God. And your sin, not your sins, not your sexual sin, not your drunkenness, not your all these other things, your sin, singular, has come up before me, God would say. And what is that sin? It's pride. How does pride work itself out? Unbelief. John 3, Jesus says, you are already condemned if you're not in me, you don't believe in me. And the reason you're condemned is because you haven't believed in me. Nineveh was not condemned because they were Assyrians, Gentiles. They weren't condemned because they had sinned in all these different ways. They were being destroyed because of their unbelief, their sin, their repression of God to the point to say, we are gods in ourselves. Their whole culture spoke that way. And so God was going to judge them and He was sending His prophet to warn them. The message of Jonah implied a call for repentance. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come before me. Now it seems to me and to you as we read the letter, there's nothing in here about repentance. Right? We don't ever see, tell them I'm going to destroy them unless they repent. But it's implied. We know it's implied because of Jonah 4 too. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because I knew you were a merciful, gracious God who would relent of your wick, your, what you were going to do to them if they repented. That's why I didn't want to go, Lord. I knew they would repent. I knew you'd forgive them. And how did he know that? Because Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8, listen to the word of God. You're here today in self-exaltation, in pride against Jesus Christ and God, and you say, I don't need His, Him. I don't have to believe in Him. I'm telling you, doom, destruction, eternal destruction waits for you. But there's hope. There is hope. Jeremiah 18, 7-8 says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah knew this very well. Our God is a merciful God. You're here today and you're, I, I, you would say, I'm not in Christ. I'm one of those people you're talking about. I've exalted myself. I've always lived my life. With a little fear of God, I wouldn't want to you know, make Him angry if He does exist, but I don't really need Him. I'm a self-made person. I can do it on my own. I'll save myself. If God won't save me as good as I am, then it's God's problem. Doom waits for you. But just like doom waits for you, God's mercy waits for you. 
And it can be had by turning from your evil way. Repent. Repent and believe and He will forgive you. And He will not do the evil which He intended. That's the promise. Jonah knew it. Jeremiah knew it. All the prophets knew this. The Lord gave a, gives us a clear call on our lives. Just like He did Jonah. Many times, we like Jonah rebel instead of obeying the Lord's call on our life. Clear call. You say, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. You're not saved. He wants you to repent and believe. Simply put. That's it. Okay, I'm already saved. I've repented and believed. I'm saved. What's, but I still don't know what He wants me to do. I don't know if I need to be a doctor. I don't know if I need to be a preacher, a teacher. I, don't, I stay at home. I don't know what. You don't need to know that. You need to know that when He lets you know that. You need to know this though. He didn't save you to bless yourself. He saved you to bless others. So just like He saved Jonah to bless the Ninevites, He saved you to be a blessing to those around you. You say, I don't know what my purpose is. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So everybody here has a direct command from God. I'm not a Christian. Repent and believe is the command. Do that. Don't try to work your way to heaven. Don't try to improve yourself. Don't try to save yourself. Speak out against that unbelief and say, I believe in Christ alone. Save me if He won't save me. I won't be saved. You've done that. You're saved. I still don't know what to do. Yes, you do. Be a blessing to others. He saved you and left you on this earth that you might take His gospel to those who need to be saved. Teach them what He's taught you in the Word. That includes all of us, doesn't it? You say, well, I don't know all the covenants. So I can't share. When I know all the covenants, I can go. You might say, well, I don't know how to answer all the questions about eternity and heaven and hell. I don't know all that. You don't need to. You need to know this. Once I was lost, now I'm found. Once I was blind, now I see. That's all you really need to know. I was going to be destroyed because I was unbelieving. Now I believe and God has saved me. He'll do the same for you. You can say that. If you've been saved, you can say that. And and then learn. Yeah, grow. Yes, mature. Yes, get to the point you can reproduce your life. Absolutely. But don't wait to that point to go and be a blessing. If you do, you'll never go. You'll always in your heart believe me. No matter how long you sit and how long you say, I need to know one more thing, you'll always need to know one more thing. Go today knowing you have a merciful God who wants to save people. And a great message. Repent, believe in Christ, and He will relent from your condemnation. What a blessing. But we don't do that, do we? We act a lot like Jonah in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The flow of prophetic message is interrupted by direct disobedience from the prophet. You want me to go to Nineveh? I'm not going. That's basically what he said. Not only am I not going, God, but I'm not even going to get close. I'm going the other way. 
You ever been there in rebellion? I've been there. I've been there. God, you think I'm going to do that? No, I'm not doing that. I'm going to the other extreme. I'm going to go as far as I can go that way so that I might leave your presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. It's a very general name, Tarshish. We're not 100% sure of where this place is located, but we believe it's southern Spain. Think about it on the map, okay? He was probably in Samaria. Okay? Here. Nineveh would have been here. North and east. Where did the prophet go? To Joppa. Across the Mediterranean. To Spain. South and west. You want me to go northeast? I'm going southwest. We do that, don't we? God... You want me to be a blessing? You want me to speak your word? You want me to be with the lost people so that I might have an impact for Christ with them? No. And we fill it with good things. I'm sure Jonah had a good reason for going there. They're lost. Maybe crossed his mind. They're lost. They never heard the gospel. I'll go to them. Later, God's going to send Paul to those people. Jonah, Jonah's not, Jonah's, maybe he's excusing himself. Well, I know you've told me to go there. I think I'll go over here. Or God, I've been trying, but they won't listen. I'm going to just quit and fall in line with them. Look a lot like them. Rebel against you like they have. God repeats himself. I think it's so that, uh, through Jonah, through Jonah, what Jonah did, through the writer here. Listen to this repetition in verse 3. Jonah rose to run away to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid its fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. You hear the repetition? I'm going to Tarshish to get out of God's presence. I'm going to Joppa, find a ship, pay for it, and I'm going to go down into the belly of it. And I'm going to go to Tarshish, and I'm going to be out of your presence. The writer wants us to realize the frantic nature in which Jonah was running from Yahweh. Tarshish's location, again, is just the opposite. The Hebrew were not known as sea travelers. They would have much rather taken a land route. He's so frantic to get there so fast, he's going to go. I'll even get on a boat with the Phoenicians, who were also hated by the Israelites. <laughs> I hate the Ninevites so much, I'm going to go get with the Phoenicians and go where they're going. I've been there. <laughs> God, you don't really want me to you know, go do that. I think I'd rather go over here. Why did Jonah not want to obey? It's two questions, this whole thing, to sum up. Why did Jonah not want to obey the call of God on his life? And then the second question is, did he really expect to accomplish anything by running away? Two things. First of all, 
Why did he not want to obey the call of God in his life? Well, the answer is not given to us in chapter 1. Again, I said it's given to us in chapter 4, verse 2. We'll get to that. So I want to leave it for you. He Basically, Jonah didn't want God to forgive Nineveh. We'll just say that for today. God did not want Jonah, um, Jonah did not want God to do, be merciful. We'll leave it with that. We'll pick that up in Jonah 4. So the second question, did he really expect to accomplish anything by running away? I don't think he did. Because in verse 9, when the storm starts and the sailors come to him, what does he say? I'm a Hebrew. Listen to what he said. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven and earth who made the sea and the dry land. That's a strange thing for a man to say who's fleeing the presence of God. I'm going to go to Tarshish. Okay. You don't think God will be there when you get there? (laughs) He knew God was going to be there. He knew God was going to be there. He knew Psalm 139, 7 through 10 Sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? Where shall I go from your presence? Or where shall I free, flee from, or where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, David said, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knew God was going to be with him on the sea. Jonah knew God was going to be with him in Tarshish. What is he doing? Same thing humans do, all of us humans do when we sin. He was feeling guilty. He knew he was supposed to go to Nineveh. He knew he wasn't going to go to Nineveh and it was eating him alive. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Jonah's doing the same thing Adam and Eve did. And you're, some of you are doing the same thing. You're a believer. You're saved. And you're living in sin. So when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday, there's a million reasons why you don't need to be with God's people. Why? Because God's people are a chastening rod, a form of discipline. I think one of the reasons he was leaving the presence of God was because it was in Israel like nowhere else. He knew as long as I'm in Israel where the temple sits and where the Holy of Holies is and where God has dwelt with His people, I can't get away from Him. i got to go to some pagan people where they're not going to talk about Yahweh and where the law's not going to be read daily and where I'm not going to be confronted with the fact that I didn't go to Nineveh. i got to go anywhere but around God's people. And when we as Christians live in sin, I say we do the same thing. The first group of people we cut out of our life as best we can is those who are believers, who know us best, who love us the most.
And I want to say to you, if you're in sin today, in Genesis 3 and in Jonah 1, God didn't leave him. God didn't leave them. In Genesis, he called out, Adam, Adam, where are you? He pursued Adam and Eve. They didn't pursue him. He pursued them. When he found them and they said, we're naked and we were ashamed, he said, who told you that? He confronted their sin and he reestablished a relationship. And in Jonah's life, Jonah said, I'm not going to be with God's people. I'm leaving Israel. I'm leaving the presence of God. I'm in sin and I know it. I'm not going to be with God's people because they convict me of my sin when I'm around them. And what did God do? The very next verse after this is, and the Lord's presence (laughs) showed up on the sea and He hurled a great wind against Him. God's child ran and God ran after Him. So what am I saying? Go to Tarshish if you want to. When you get there, God will be there. Run from Him if you want to. But He's going to come after you because He loves you. Not because He's a heavy-handed, hateful Father. Because He's a loving Father. Because He sees His children heading into traffic to be run over by the semi of sin. And He says, no. I paid too great a price. I gave too much and I loved them far beyond anything they could ever imagine. I will not let them be destroyed. They're my people. Now, you can be in His presence through repentance now or you can run to Tarshish. Either way, it's just a matter of a storm. Maybe three or four days in a predicament in Sheol where Jonah ended up. I don't know. There's no length to which God won't go to have you back when you're in sin. There's no length He won't go to. Aren't you glad you have a Father like that in heaven? He's not like an earthly father who often will turn a blind eye and say, well, I love my son. I know he's in sin, but I'll just overlook it. No, he's not that kind of God. And he's not a father like like us who would say there's a limit and when they cross that limit, they're out. No, he says, I'm going to go after them. I'm going to have them. I'm going to bring them back. And so for you lost people, repent and believe is my one message to you today. And to those of us who are saved, don't run from God when you sin. Don't run from His people. Don't try to flee from His presence. You can't. He's always there. Arms stretched out. Lap empty. Ready for His children to come and sit in His presence. That He could hold them. That He could preach to them the words of redemption again. That He could say, there's no greater love than that I would lay down my life for you. Welcome home. Welcome home. We serve a great God who's given us direct commands and who's calling us to personal relationship.
It's available. Have it today through Christ. Have it today through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am confident that there is no way we could ever be out of your presence. Even in the grave, we're in your presence. If, your chi- if we are your child, we are in your presence immediately at death. You've never left us. you never forsake us. There are Jonas in this room today. I've been one. By your grace today, this moment I am not him, but I could be by the end of this day. If it's left to me, Lord, I will be Jonah again. Not later, but sooner. And so there's no guilt to be heaped on anyone here. Only the message that straight cuts it straight, and that is that the gospel saves, redeems, and establishes us in you, in your righteousness. And so wherever we go, you're there. There are those Jonas in this room that are running as hard and as fast and as far as they can. And I pray that your spirit would grab hold of their heart and say, stop running. No matter how far you run, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. No matter how much sin you commit, you're my child. You will not lose my grace. And ultimately, I will have the victory. And Lord, for those who are lost, there is a sentence of death over them now. Please, God, run after them. Cause them to repent and believe. If it's left to them, they will never do it. Lord, don't leave it to them. Please, Lord, bring them with that spirit, that same spirit, into that personal relationship with you, that new life, that flowing water, that eternal bread. Lord, bless them and help us to be a blessing. We are saved and left in this earth that we might bring glory to your name by sharing and preaching the gospel with every creature. Let us do it this week by your grace and for your glory and nothing else. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And I'm sure that.